Oh man, I'm so excited about this one. I, I mean, I was about to record a final episode that was just me talking. Um, it's about these uncertain times. Um, and it was going to be about how I find that phrase kind of silly for reasons you'll hear in the episode. But then I got a special guest to uh, walk into the quote-unquote recording studio and record the episode with me. So you'll hear what she has to say. This guest, she... Um, she has a habit of repeating what I say because of her professional training. You know, it it helps her show <laughs> uh, <laughs> that she's paying attention. And so if you want to have like a fun drinking game, you should drink every time that she repeats what I say. You will, you will be dead. Okay. Okay, so we're going to talk about these uncertain times. Um, as you all know, my name is JPB Gerald. I'm here with a special guest today who is going by AMT Gerald. Um, this is the only possible interview that I could do during this, uh, these uncertain times in person, but I did not break the rules, which means that, yes, this is my wife. So, hello. Hi. <laughs> Uh, I've been trying to get, this is the hardest guest to get onto the podcast. You know, like I've, I've had some interesting people, but this is the one person I've wanted to get on here for the entire time. Um, you've heard my dog in the background and he's right there sniffing. You might hear him in the microphone. You've heard my son in the background, but my wife, the only time you can hear my wife on this show is when you hear the ad and she's sort of in the background putting uh, dishes away. So I make it seem like she does dishes. I usually do the dishes, but, but that's but that's the one time you can hear her. All right. So we're going to talk about these uncertain times. Earlier today, we were talking a little bit about how this country has really just terrible parental leave. What are your thoughts on parental leave in the United States, Miss, Mrs. Gerald? Yikes. Um, parental leave in the United States is, uh, you know, really bad. <laughs> great insight there <laughs> um it's something that i never really thought about too much but now that i'm actually going through it um you know it kind of really puts shines a light on on the deficiencies we have in our policies so you know my job has um offers a little bit of paid leave for employees, um, in addition to what's offered from the state, and if you want to take any unpaid time off, however, that is, you know, certainly not enough at this point, um, as well as three months. So, twelve weeks is typically how much people take off, and that's what FMLA covers. So, um, this is probably when I would be returning if I didn't, um, if I weren't afforded kind of other avenues to pursue, like I mentioned from my employer and from the state. And I couldn't imagine being separated from him at this point. Um, and even I have about three weeks left, even at that point, I don't know that that would have been enough time if we were, if we were, um, you know, going back to work as, as traditionally, you know, me going into the office and him going into care although Justin was going to take time off also. So it would have delayed it a little bit more, but I just don't think I could have been separated from him. Um, so early on, um, it's just not enough time. You can talk to me, you know, and say, Justin, like I'm, you can say you, 
I could say you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but so what's interesting about this, because the whole thing is about the uncertain times, is that like we, you know, nothing is really going to change in terms of his care situation, aside from more of the time being shared with me, because you'll be, I guess, having phone calls is what you're going to be doing for work. Yeah, um, phone calls. Yeah, a lot of phone calls. Because um, it's that and going to places, but you're not going right, to places. Not going to places. So phone calls and uh, I imagine Zoom. Well, I mean that is, is basically a phone call. Is that a phone call? It's, I mean, it's. A, I haven't been working. I don't know. <laughs> um, and you know, one of the things that you know a lot more about than I do is like the housing and homeless situation in New York. Um, well, t- why don't you tell the people, all of the people listening, what it is that you actually do? What do I do? I am a social worker by training, um, and I currently work in affordable housing development. Affordable? Oh, no, not that word. People don't know. People don't like that word. People don't like that word. Um, it is technically affordable housing, everyone. Um, affordable for who? Yes, I know. It's funny. But I currently work for an affordable housing developer. I am, uh, I oversee our programming in our developments and we have a few offshoot programs such as a youth development program and we have a family shelter um, and some other small little things like that. But we also more recently started offering services directly to our, our residents who live in our developments and part of how we develop our housing is to set aside 30% of our units to um, individuals or families moving out of shelter. So um, usually there are some requirements for that within affordable housing. Uh, 30% is, is um, a larger proportion than, than others. Um, so that's what I do now. And before this, I was working at a, a social service agency in the Bronx and I was doing homelessness prevention work. And also I did a little work in the family shelters um, and I kind of went back and forth between two programs. So I've seen, I like to think I've seen a lot on the spectrum of homelessness and housing. Um, and now that I'm on the permanent housing side, um, it kind of makes me realize that nothing that I've done is really meaningful (laughs) in the sense that, you know, all the programs I've been in were basically to adhere to city policies. Right. And those city policies don't really do anything to support individuals and families experiencing homelessness. Um, it just kind of keeps keeps people in a holding pattern. And even once they're housed, most people are relying on vouchers and subsidies that are administered by the city. And so therefore you're relying on uh, another city policy, city funding, federal funding, and should any of that change, you know, their lives. And it's going to change now. It's going to change. We're going to see what's going to happen. Um particularly with all these evictions that are going to be coming up in the fall and and winter. That'll be an exciting time for everyone in housing court. Um, The city's going to pour a ton of money, I'm sure, into um, paying off these arrears that people are accumulating. So it's just a big, there's a lot of money, tons of money. You wouldn't even believe how much money is being spent on this for, for, you know, and there's no, 
um, there's no visible kind of good outcome, right? Yeah. Improvement. Um, tons of money. I sound like Trump. Tons and tons of money. Lots of money. The most money. <laughs> the most money. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, because, and then, well, one thing that you've been, you've always commented on it during these uncertain times, I'm going to keep saying that because it's the title of the episode, uh, is their plans, how they put the homeless people on the buses. Oh, yeah. Homeless people on the buses. That's a, that's also... Well, keep, remember, people in, who may not be in New York, they don't know. Right. Yes. Yeah. So the for so there's a lot of different you know types of homeless um you know you have street homeless those are the people you see on the street those are typically men who probably have some some sort of psychiatric disorder or medical issue something to that effect you don't see a lot of families living on the street uh you have your families in shelter families who are doubled up families who are kind of going couch to couch you also have single adults who are doing that but less so um, you have the single adult shelter system in New York. Um, they separate it with men. They have the men's side, they have the women's side, then they have the adult family side. Um, so there's a lot, it's a, it's a lot of, a lot of stuff going into, um, shelters and stuff like that. So what they started doing for the, the single, typically single adults that, that spend their time on the subways since they're closed now overnight for a little while for cleaning, um, the these people, these people, I mean, uh, decision makers made the decision to put MTA buses, so city buses outside of last stops and allowing the people to stay on the buses while they clean the stations. Yes, yeah, the, the subways and stations. So um, it's a bad idea. It's a dumb idea. Um, Why is it a bad idea? Uh, you know, again, it's just, it's just put them on the bus. We don't know what else to do with them. Um, it's just inhumane. And it's really, it's really, you know, disrespectful to someone as a person um, to say that this is the best we can do for you. Now, a lot of these people, you'll say, you'll ask, well, why don't they go to shelter? Well, the shelters are also, you know, not very pleasant places. Um Again, in my experience, I worked in family shelters, but my, the agency I worked for also had um, did a lot for the adult side. So I've I've gone into these facilities, and you know they're just not places that you want to be. Um, and you know, if you could imagine just a bunch of people with untreated psychiatric problems in one congregate setting that is not equipped to deal with those issues. And they're not equipped to deal with coronavirus. And not equipped to deal with coronavirus. Um, you know, it's not pretty. I mean, it's, I mean, I there's not too much difference between that and being in Rikers. I mean, there's not too much difference between that and being in Rikers. There's not, I repeat what Justin says. That's part of my social work training. So we do this a lot. <laughs> it's really annoying. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you, you, you mentioned how the, yeah, putting them, it's just kicking the can down the road. It's kicking the can down the road. And this is what, you know, you know, it, it just bothers me because we know what the right thing to do is. We know what works and what does work. Well, we know for that population supportive housing works. So you know, developing more supportive housing is a good idea. 
of supporting housing works. It's a housing first model, quote unquote, if you're into that sort of a thing. But basically, it's just allowing um, people to have their own living environment, which is what is the right thing to do. Oh, I thought you were saying no. Yeah, I'm yeah. not going to say any more of <laughs> that. Uh, the um, well, if we go back to the affordable housing thing, there's there's so much. Whenever I hear the discussions of affordable housing, usually people don't really understand how the numbers are calculated. Is what I think the main problem is. How right affordable housing? Um, so one needs to understand that. Developing housing in New York City is very expensive. Um, which is its own problem. Which is its own problem, which leads right into uh, these crazy affordable, quote-unquote, affordable housing rents and what what is what the public sees. But, you know, behind closed doors, all these numbers need to make sense, right? So if you're developing a project, um, you know, you have the, you usually have, you definitely have city money to do it and sometimes federal money um, in addition to private money from the banks. Um, but it's just so expensive to do. So essentially when you're developing it, it's, you need to make the numbers work. Right. So in the affordable housing rents are determined based on the area of median income, which is a problem because we know that that's not reflective of every neighborhood. So that's really where the disconnect comes into play. Um, and also in the luxury buildings that are partially affordable housing, the 80-20s is what they're called. It's 80% market rate, 20% um, affordable housing. Your 80% are subsidizing the 20%. So that's good in a way. And you could find the the folks that move into the 20%, their rents are, are pretty low, um, but then they're in typically in neighborhoods in which they can't afford, you know, the cost of living in that area. So when you see, when you see the rents, um, yes, they can be high, but it's not like, it's it's just the way it is. I don't know how else to put it. Um, they do have, and there are different income bands for it. You know, you have your moderate income, your low income, your very low income, extreme low income. There's a lot of different kind of variations. Um, so, you know, a lot of people who have decent paying jobs can qualify for affordable apartments, affordable um, housing development apartments, which is a good thing. I think they, what we do, we don't do a good job at, at, um, funding and developing apartments for very low income and extremely, extremely low income, which is, you know, where my interests lie, um, because those are the, the folks that are really kind of cut out of any type of housing and, um, you know, any type of, services. So, well, uh, there are plenty of services, but they're just kind of cut out of the an independent way of living. Well, so w w that gap, I mean, we can't really put a number on it because it depends on the neighborhood, but um, and how many people live in the, how many people are in the family. So, you know, it's hard to say this is the number, but I mean, I know the city has numbers, but you know what I'm saying? Would you say, generally speaking, and we're talking about New York here, it's sort of 
the gap is sort of between the poverty line and whatever level you get to to afford those affordable housing. Yes. Um because, for example, like the affordable housing, I just saw the advertisement for in our neighborhood, which has a pretty high median income. Um, you know, it's you know a couple of grand a month at the the high end for the for the apartments, right? And people who are in different places like that's that's ridiculous. Yeah, well, you know, I think this is a, a fairly high income neighborhood in New York, um, so that's actually not that expensive. You know, which is like its own problem, but let's just say that's just how things are. Uh, and there's a big gap between that group of people where there are options and then the people who are below the poverty line who have, you know, it's not a good life, but it's, it, it, you know, in that sense, there's not a lot, but there's, I don't want to say there's not a good life. Well, okay, what that is what I said, but it's not fun, I should say, but, uh, there are services and then there's a gap between the poverty line and like that area. Well, how would you define it? Here's the thing with the, the rents that are in like the, that are fairly close to market rent, those units actually stay vacant. So because if one can afford to pay 2,800 or if the lottery unit is 2,800, you likely can pay, 3100. So therefore you have your you you are able to participate in the in the free market, right? So quote unquote free. the quote unquote free market. And the problem is a lot of those the the lottery units they might be smaller than a regular market. It's not it's just because they try to maximize the number of units, right? It's not for any like scam or anything like that necessarily. It's just you're maximizing it um because again the numbers. So but if you could pay twenty eight hundred, you could probably pay thirty one hundred. You might as well pay thirty one hundred in a slightly larger or a larger apartment, and you could participate. So therefore, the unit that's twenty eight hundred stays vacant for a while, and the developer just lets them stay vacant. There was a time when they, when the developer could say, "Oh, it's been vacant. We tried to find someone, we couldn't," and then they could flip it over into a market rate unit in a fairly short period of time. That's no longer. Um, a practice that's allowed. I don't know what the, I'm not hundred percent sure what the new rule is, but they can't do that anymore. Um, which is a good thing and a bad thing because the units are still saying vacant. Um, so to get people in there, you know, something's got to give. So I don't know what's going to happen with that type of policy. Um, for, for people who are kind of below the poverty line, I, I don't think it's for lack of services. There are plenty of services out there, like saturated with services in the city. It's what are our services doing? Um, And again, back to the services are adhering to the policies set by the city. So the services are working. They're keeping people where they are. They're providing the Band-Aid relief. They're they're kind of providing a crisis intervention, but they're not addressing the fundamental issues related to why a family is living in poverty or how can we help you kind of, um, how can we help you work through some of these issues? It's kind of a, you know, here's the service we provide, take it or leave it. That's really what it boils down to. There's a lot of, um, you know, workforce development programs that don't really do anything. They train people, I don't know what they train people in. They don't really train people, but they say, okay, you can go to the security guard training. Okay. Well, security guards earn minimum wage. The hours are bad. Um, 
depending on where you work, you might not get insurance, all those types of things. So, I mean, that would be great as like, okay, a stepping stone, what's after security or how can you move up to be like a security supervisor? What is the ladder within that? It, those things don't really exist. It's really just get someone in their home. Health aid trainings are really popular in the city. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's um, concerning. So those are the type of quote unquote services that are provided on that level as far as how can, how can we help one really um, and help is a bad word in this to me, I think, but how can we really, um, how can we influence and help change their lives with the, the, with how they want to see their lives going? It's not something that we, that we do. And it's, it's not something that I see happening um, anytime soon. Well, so, I mean, yeah, I think sometimes people think, and it's something I thought because I, I don't work for, but I work with the city. Um, you know, the, the, the programs are doing what they're supposed to be doing. It's just that what they're supposed to be doing is not actually giving people a chance to move to, you know, a more stable life. Right. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. One project that I worked on last year that I always talk about is um, engaging with, with, you know, I still don't know what the right word is, but like essentially folks who, who lived, who have lived experience of homelessness. So I worked with three women for about a year um, and we just like met weekly and talked through all these things. And it was really, really good and really insightful and really valuable. And um, one of them she always says, you know, it's doing exactly what it's designed to do. And, you know, she's a hundred percent right because it's not, it's just keeping people where the city wants to be kept. So homelessness can be solved. It's not, it's not, um, it's not impossible. Uh, you know, part of the problem with our subsidies, I don't, I don't necessarily like subsidies, um, and vouchers, but, they do have a place. It's just their place is not, um, it should be, a, it should be a, a step, right? So you should have a voucher. There should be some graduated thing with quote unquote services that help you figure out what it is you want to do or whatever. If the person needs that, right. We also assume that people can't figure this stuff out on their own. And that's not true. Um, there's just, you know, a lot of pro- likely a lot of other things going on that, have prohibited and continue to prohibit someone from exploring um, what they want to do or whatever the case may be. And also, you know, jobs just don't pay a lot. (laughs) I mean, I feel like that's a big part of the problem. That's a big part of the problem. Um, And they're not going to pay more after this. They're not going to pay more. Um, So yeah, like I said, we'll see what happens in the, in the winter, in the fall, um, but, uh, you know, the city will, will definitely be pouring zillions of dollars into, to avoiding shelter entries. It's really what it boils down to when they pay so much money out into prevention, quote unquote, it's really to avoid the shelter numbers from going up. We have probably like 60,000 in shelter. I think it's either 50 or 60. I don't know. I've been kind of out of the loop a little bit, but that's, you know, that's a lot. And they just don't want that number to go up. So they will pay, 
you know, whatever it takes to keep people in their apartments. So, um, that, but that's for folks who are like at or below the poverty line, like, you know, anyone above that there, there's a little wiggle room, but anyone above that, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. They're not going to end up in the shelter system, but I don't know what's going to happen. Well, I mean, you, you know, when that big report came out last fall about the percentage of kids that were homeless, oh yeah, you know, um, but people found this just astronomical because I think people, um, don't re- really do think homeless is man on train with bag, you know, yeah. you know, pe- that's what, cause that's what you see. Right. You know, um, I mean, we, you have obviously seen many different things, but like, you know, when people say what they say about homeless people, they don't, I don't think that they realize that they could be speaking to homeless people. They don't know. They could be, they don't know. Um, the report with the numbers, yeah, it's staggering. Uh, but a lot of those kids are in a home. They're in a home. The de- the de- definition, according to McKinney Vento, if you want to do a little Googling, McKinney Vento, that's kind of like the standard that we use. If you don't have a permanent, you know, daily address or something like that, I don't know the language 100%, but that's like ultimately what it boils down to. If you that's don't- why you write permanent address on your forms when you say things. You say permanent address. Right. Yeah. But if so if you can't do that. Then, then you are. That's that's the definition, basically. Correct. That doesn't mean you don't have a roof over your head, necessarily. Right. Um, right. So a lot of those students are probably sheltered um, in shelter, um, and with a portion who are doubled up. But what does doubled up mean, Alyssa? Doubled up means you are living with another family, your own family. Uh, you know, it's just you're doubled up with another family, essentially. I don't know how else to, to say it, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, right? But oftentimes they're overcrowded circumstances, so that's where the problem lies. Right. And because, um, you know, when I was having that discussion, you know, arguing with people on the internet today, as I do about uh, different areas with the COVID numbers, and they were talking about how in Starrett City, this random person was saying, well, that's just, you know, several families living in the same apartment or something like that, uh, as if it was their fault that they were dying or something like that. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I, that random comment, but it's representative of a certain at, at, attitude. Part of the reason people are just like, well, we just need to go back and open everything. And remember, we're recording this on May 19th. Um, first of all, we will eventually. I don't know. People just wait. Um and second, you know, they think once the numbers have come out that it's hit certain areas much harder, it's clear that some people have decided, well, then it's just not that big of a deal. So let me go about my life. And it's these communities that Alyssa's talking about that for, they can't be distant. If one person, you know, one of the things that the governor was saying, I'm not supporting what he's saying, but just in terms of statistics, a lot of people who are coming in are people who are at home and he seemed mystified by it. Well, clearly happens if someone brings it home, they may not have any symptoms and then everyone in the house might get sick. And in these situations, like a double up situation, someone gets, someone's working a quote unquote essential job, right? There's eight people in the apartment. That person comes home. Now you got five to eight people sick. And then, you know, it's going through the entire neighborhood. So um, these, you know, the different issues with housing, I think, are things that people uh, don't really understand. Something that I don't particularly understand firsthand myself. Um, 
So I think that's one of the ways that uh, this whole situation is having a different impact than people realize unless they're paying direct attention to it. At least that's what I think. Yeah, no, it's true. Um, you know, I, I think health is, health is housing is what people say. Um, and certainly as a, as a society, Americans value space and their own things yet that's not afforded to everyone. Um, so, you know, that's why I say doubled up isn't bad if that's what works for you. And, you know, obviously we know some cultures that's, um, the norm and, you know, there were to be any other way, but the way we do it here, it's just, there is no other choice. Um, and, and it leads to a lot of, um, you know, relationship issues, so on and so forth. And like, you're pointing out the health issues. Um, it's just kind of endless and the children don't have a place to kind of be on their own and all these, these types of things. And if you have multiple apartments in a building with all, all these families doubled up, then, um, you know, you're really kind of having, creating a problem, not to mention most of these properties are probably not well-maintained. We're not talking about buildings on fifth Avenue. Um, so, just keeping that in mind, if you already, if you live in conditions that are subpar, that usually will exacerbate any medical issue. Um, so it's just kind of like an endless stream of things that are wrong with all of it. I mean, when they point out that the vast majority of people had some sort of, you know, underlying condition, right? And they say it as if that means, well, then nothing's going to happen to everybody else. Sure, it's true in the sense that you are certainly at a much higher risk if you have uh, an immune issue or, or something else. But when it's framed the way it's framed, generally speaking, it sounds like they're blaming the people when people don't take it a step further and say, why is it that everyone in this community has these issues. This didn't just happen. People didn't just wake up and say, you know, we all have this disease. Let's go live together. Like that's not just a thing that happens. So there was a, you were saying there was a thing called Medicaid. Medicaid redesign. It's a little old now, but it's, you know, I'm pretty sure it's still happening. Uh, A few years ago um, where hospitals, it was to cut down on hospital spending, right? And Medicaid billing. So if you had what they call frequent flyers going to the hospital um, over and over emergency care, emergency care, Um, the hospital would then be penalized for the person returning. Right. Because then that's, that's indicating the person is not getting follow-up care um, with a preventive or regular provider. So there is a bunch of money made available to kind of for hospitals, um, medical offices, to team up with whomever they wanted to, to address these issues. So a lot of hospitals would partner with um, community-based organizations to figure out how can we um, support people in, in seeking out preventive care and, and avoid the return to the hospitals in emergency circumstances. What would do you, I mean, do, do you think the people couldn't afford the preventive care? I mean, I mean, yeah, most of these people, because they had Medicaid, so they have insurance. The problem is, I'll get back to, if I don't forget, um, I think what they say with mommy brain can happen because I have like this thought in my head. Um, The problem is the quality of care. So, you know, Medicaid recipients, 
there are only but so many providers available and clinics and offices available. And like the one you went, like the one I went you to one time you went to the one time, the one time I went to a clinic in Astoria and nothing wrong about that. This is going to, you're going to make it sound bad. No, you just went to a clinic. I to went get, to a clinic. To a I need to, get, I need to get a, a T. What is it? TB test. I don't know tuberculosis. Yeah, where they you have to, you have to go back and get it read. Yeah, yeah, I had to get that done, and uh, my providers, my regular providers, are not in the city, so um, I hate traveling all the way up there. It's, it's okay, it's worth it. So I had to go to the one right next. So it was right underneath our apartment, essentially. So I went there, and it was you know not my favorite experience. The waiting room was crowded. Um, there was it was delayed. It was a little disorganized. And and let's be clear, this was not a like sliding scale clinic. I'm not trying. We're not trying to disparage clinics that people go to who don't have you know good you know strong insurance or anything. It's that this was the situation in what I guess would probably be a middle income area, right? And the clinic situation in low income areas is worse than that. Right. So while I was there, it was just like, you know, chaotic. Um, the doctor, you know, they were delayed. The doctor was, you know, perfectly capable. You know, the, the providers were fine and, you know, they knew what was going on. Um, but the office environment was just not for me. And like they were drawing my blood. They had the door open and I was like, no, like time out, everyone. We have to close the door. When they read my thing, when I went back to get it read, they didn't have a place for me to sit. So they took me to like the pediatric side and like I was sitting in the hallway in a chair. It was very strange. Um, so I was like, I will never go back there again. Um, and by comparison, when we went to my provider at the beginning of the pregnancy, they offered Justin coffee and tea multiple times. So it was just a very different granola bars and granola bars um, you know, for the taking. So it's just a very different experience. So that is why I traveled to go to my doctors and I've been going to them for probably, but you also used to, you also used to live there. I also used to live there. So it wasn't just a random, it wasn't just random. So anyway, she really does repeat what I said. I'm just saying. So, so back to the Medicaid redesign. So they, the hospitals teamed up with these, you know, CBOs, like I said, and, they were trying to figure out like, Oh, how can we stop people from coming to the emergency room? So essentially what you, what they, a lot of what ended up happening, and this is a pretty common position and program that's available now. Um, they're called, I don't know what they're called, but they're essentially coordinators. So, you know, if I, I do have, I have medical issues, I could be linked with this coordinator who will allegedly like help coordinate or all of my care and make sure, um, you know, there aren't any deficiencies and yada, yada, yada. So I don't go back into the emergency room. Um, it's a good idea in theory. Uh, the problem is it's another person in my life. Right. And another person I have to talk to and follow up with. And it's like, it's, it's field based. So you have the person coming into the home and doing visits there and, you know, HIPAA, HIPAA this, HIPAA that, and all this stuff. It just, it just adds to the chaos, in my opinion. I think it could work for some people um, and could probably make a big difference for some people, but it's not, I don't think it's the right, it's the right choice. If, if 
doctor's offices in every neighborhood were just, um, you know, not so chaotic, it might just do the trick. And I don't think that that's like a far, a far reach. So what do they need to do? Just have more of them? Clinics? I don't know. I don't know the first thing about running a clinic or a doctor's office, but you know, there's got to be a way. It's not rocket science. Just don't be chaotic. Don't. First of all, you know, I think they think because we're in this neighborhood, um, this is as good as it's going to get, right? So there's a little bit of that going on. Like you can't expect too much, which is just the wrong mindset. Um, if you're providing care, it should be quality care. It should be consistent and everyone should be able to um, have access to a favorable experience because then people just don't want to return, right? Oh, I can never see my doctor or they don't listen or, uh, you know, you know, whatever, whatever the typical complaints are. I mean, it's hard. Like th there's a lot of doctor's offices, even in nice areas that are not pleasant. So if it's unpleasant in areas that are not uh, challenging, let's put it that way, then imagine what it's like to go to a place. And, and then it's just, it's not too different from going to, 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 to like a city office and the people there a lot of the time are, are fed up and then, you know, they talk to you in such a way and you're like, well, I don't want to come back. Right. I wouldn't want to go back either. And, you know, just an example, I worked on an asthma project with this type of similar model where we partnered with a hospital in the Bronx and, um, you know, they were trying to track children who were entering the ER with asthma, um, you know, asthma complaints. And part of it was like the staff on my program would look at what their housing issues are. And there were also, uh, I forgot what they're called, but like health people. I don't know what they're called. It'll come to me. Maybe <laughs> yeah, they're like health caseworkers. I don't know. Something like that. They would talk to the families and patients, you know, on that end, but we weren't necessarily super coordinated, which was a problem. Um, and again, with apartment conditions in New York city, while we were tasked with helping to address the apartment conditions, you can only do it so much. You can only but send but so many letters to the landlord lord threatening action if they don't like exterminate or something like that. So it's like it goes beyond extermination. It goes beyond um, providing Tupperware and uh, vacuums, which is what we were doing, which is not bad. Right. That's not the wrong thing to do, but it's just not. It's not enough. It's not going to really change. It's a, a bandaid, like you said. It's after. It's after, It's putting. It doesn't solve the, the reason that you're bleeding. It just stops you from bleeding temporarily. Right. Um, I mean, you 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 have all worked with what developers who you know, end up in the paper for being slumlords, right? Oh yes. <laughs> yes, we are not slumlords. We pride ourselves in in uh, uh, in our developments in our housing, um, but. They are, they're out there. Um, you know, you'd be shocked with some of these, these buildings and, and properties and apartments. It's really kind of, it's really shocking. Uh, you know, NYCHA is the biggest slumlord there is. Um, but they have a lot of people dying from COVID. And they have a lot of people dying from COVID. Um, and again, like we know what the right thing to do is. Why is there why are people having to put in so many work orders for the same thing and waiting forever? 
it's not, that's not a trick question. It's just like, just go and do the work order, just go and do it correctly. Um, but these properties were just not maintained. The federal government did not provide the level of funding required to maintain the buildings and the systems and the infrastructure, because that's really what it boils down to. When you have a property that was built in, I don't know, I don't know, First Avenue was the first development. Um, when was it first built in like the 40s or something like that? Probably around then. I don't know if the top of my head. First Avenue and what? East Side somewhere. Yeah, I, I know it's East Side. It's First Avenue. I don't know. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> I don't know. Up there. Oh, like like 100 and, like 101st Street? Maybe. Oh, like by where I lived. Yeah, like by where you lived. Yeah. Um, I told you, she, she really does repeat what I said. But if you don't, if you, you know, we're not using the same, if you don't maintain those structures, from, you know, at this point, almost 100 years ago, what do you think is going to happen? So it's not a mystery. And the same thing with the lead paint scandal, you know, fix the paint. It's not that hard. Well, I mean, so NYCHA, when did NYCHA fall into complete disrepair? We're on a completely different Day topic one. than we started. <laughs> Day one. No, they used to be, they must have, it used to have been. Well, okay that was when, well, was that Moses, was. right? And all of that. Well, stuff. yes. But who was living in the apartments at that time? Well, there you go. That's your answer. When did that change? When did people start moving out? So basically when people went, when people were able to afford to move to this, when the suburbs beckoned and people left, because public housing wasn't shameful when it came out, you know, it wasn't something, not that we should be ashamed. I'm just saying like, you know, people weren't like looking down on people for living in public housing the same way that people didn't look down on public schools uh, or just public things um and then people could move out so they moved to the suburbs they moved to the suburbs or they moved to you know a better neighborhood location or in the same neighborhood but they just were able to afford market rent so they they did that which is what was supposed to happen which is what was supposed to happen yeah uh but then other people uh people that the government cared a little bit less about moved in and all of a sudden they forgot about they forgot about them, right? So there's just a huge disinvestment into um, public housing, and that's across the country. You can read books about it. It's all the same story over and over again. And, you know, it's a little bit – it might sound like it's a little off-topic, but quote-unquote uncertain times. Uncertain times um, are what a lot of these are, – are what a lot of people are experiencing all of the time. Just, that was the point I was making with the title of the episode. So you already right. you got to my point. I didn't, even, I didn't even tell you. You didn't even tell didn't me. Didn't even tell you. This you is, we're on the same wavelength. That's why we got married. <laughs> That's why we got married. Um, because that that is my main point. Because what what all of that? Because when you hear these at certain times, you're mostly hearing it in like advertisements on television and stuff like that. And the ads are they're not for the people in the public housing. I mean, they could see them on the television, but they're for me right? They're for you. And they're for us saying, these are uncertain times. Why don't you buy this car? Which we might actually do. Um, but but, but uh, well, we have a baby, you know, whatever. Um, but um, the times have become uncertain, right? Pointing out that the times are uncertain is to show a contrast with the times that are supposed to be certain. Whereas for everybody else, everything is always uncertain, Right. Relying on the government is never a good position to be in, um, I don't think. And well, not in this country. Not in this country. And a lot of people, you know, 
they have no choice but to be reliant on the government, um, which is a scary position to be in. And there's a lot of people, you book the book I'm reading, you know, a lot of people who are reliant on the government but vote to make it so the government has less money because they think that the other people that are being helped by the government aren't worth being helped, even though they need the government themselves, which when you try to break down the logic chain makes as little sense as possible. But that's what's happening because there was a, well, people always say there was a time when, you know, we taxed things high enough that things were taken care of, but who was being taken care of at the time, right? People say in the fifties, we had a, a very high tax rate on uh, the richest people. That's true. But at the time, the people being helped by it, you know, looked a little bit more like the richest people. So it was, this was not being, like the, the country was not taking care of everybody at any point. There has never been a point when this country took care of everybody. Like there was a time, the, 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 you know, the difference between the a worker's wages and a CEO's wages blew up since the 70s. But there was no time when, Everyone was being treated equally in this country, so I think it's really just they, 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 if we if we were to solve the housing problem, right? If we were to make it so that that was you know something that they could check off, there would still be uncertain times for these folks. It just it would be it would be something else. It would be something else, but you know, frankly, the one of a stronger solution to the housing stuff that would minimize some of this uncertainty is um, an expansion of Section 8. Um, while I said I don't believe necessarily in subsidies and vouchers, Section 8 is a model that is, it's one of the best ones out there because it, you know, it's 30% of, of someone's income. So therefore it's scaled to their income. It's not just all or nothing. Um, you can earn up to a certain amount, which is pretty, it's, it's not high. I'm not going to say it's high, but it's not like $21,000 a year which is what the, the local subsidies, that's not the number, but it's, it's, it's um, rated to the um, federal pot- poverty level. So what is there the state self-support is it federal or state federal. Okay. Cause there's New York state one slightly higher than the federal, but yeah, it's like, they're both like in the teens or something. Yeah, exactly. So it's, so section eight actually um, is a better solution because then once you're up on the higher limit, you likely can afford the full rent anyway. The trouble is that, um, who used to say that all the time? The problem is, I don't know. Someone you probably don't want to name. Um, the problem is there, there's a lot of source of income discrimination. So landlords, some landlords love section eight and will like seek it out, but some will say only working section eight. So that's like discrimination, obviously. Um, and others will not accept it at all when, you know, legally they're required to, it's just difficult to catch these people, um, their efforts out there, but you know, how, how are you going to do it? And if you're, if I'm someone with a section eight voucher and I'm just trying to find someone, it's, it's, it's tiring to do that. And then you have to report them and prove it and all this stuff. So, um, there's yeah, it's it's kind of a lot, but source of income discrimination is then part of the equation. What um, 
one thing we talked about is, you know, when we come out of this in, you know, six to 45 months or whatever, uh, you know, it's going to take, people are going to be working differently. Even if there's vaccine, everything, everything gets solved, you know, what's solved, right? You're about, you're about people died. I'm just saying we get to, I don't want to say the new normal. I'm not, I can't even with that, but uh, we get to a new version of the world. You know, we're going to see things change such that more people are working from home at least. And, you know, there's going to be more, like I said, more telework. People are going to commute differently or they're going to be less interested in taking the subway, even if there's a vaccine. And therefore, the, you know, the experience of having to be distant from people, it's going to make it a lot harder for people to be like, I think I'd just go be in front of someone's face now. Um, and what, 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 what would you realistic, both realistically and idealistically hope to happen that would improve these things that you are experienced in because you know they are going to try to make things how it was before because they're comfortable with that but realistically as far as things that might actually change you know what what when you go back to work soon and you know all of these things happen what what would you like to push for what would you like to see more of for myself or for people i work for well for the like people with housing instability. Oh, what would I like to see? Um, you know, a deeper level of respect and understanding um, and not just kind of pooling people into groups. Um, as I mentioned before, the that project I work with with three women, um, you know, part of my recommendations after that were to in, to start an advisory board so the coalition that that was born out of, um, it's a bunch of providers that just talk about their brilliant ideas. I'm part of it. So, you know, um, but that there should be an advisory board made up of people who have experience or are currently homeless to kind of run our ideas by them to see if they actually like add up because a lot of times they sound crazy. Um, and me and my colleague that we're working on this project closely together really pushed for that. And while I've been off, I learned that um, two of them will be included in our, our steering committee, which is really exciting. So there definitely needs to be more of that. Um, and just not so much otherness, you know, you know, I think often we're, we look at the people who we service as other and, Sure, they, you know, there are different circumstances than our own, but it's not so other because, again, these are structural issues and we really have to kind of be willing to address and point out the structural issues that exist that are perpetuating all of the problems. You see, in this 50 minutes, I understand more about what you do than I have in the last five years since I met you. So... You know, that was good for me. I think that's an exaggeration. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 thought, I think I knew a lot of those things, but ha, ha, putting them all into one conversation has been useful for framing. Is my right. Point. Right. I, yes. I knew all of those things in se se separate snippets, but bringing them into one narrative, you know, 
that's what I like to do on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what my day job is. <laughs> and basically that's how you are. That's how you, when you go back to work soon are going to help in these uncertain times. That's how I'm going to help with these uncertain times. I am going to do a better job of, um, you know, pointing out these issues and making bigger pushes for, for real change and kind of, um, including people that we are affecting into the conversation because otherwise it's just, you know, it's pointless, I think. Um, cause as a quick example, you know, the, the, um, mobility issues that I have, there is a support group that I have attended in the past and the support group only was only meeting in person. And I had requested a few times, like, can we have some type of conference line or, you know, FaceTime, I don't know, whatever the case may be. And it was never really allowed, but this is a group for people with mobility issues um, that also comes with fatigue and stuff like that. So by the end of the work, sometimes you met like upstairs. Yes. And sometimes we met upstairs. So for people, and this was, it's often held after work. So people, you know, to travel somewhere after work and to sit there for another two hours. Like, it's just a lot. I get very tired. I mean, you know, I go to sleep pretty early. It's way past my bedtime right now. It's 8.15. It's 8.15. It's past my bedtime. Um, But it's just exhausting. So I don't know. Now they're finally online because of the, this pandemic, but um, you know, including the people who are, who are being impacted is necessary. Like it just doesn't make sense to not have a virtual option for that type of thing. So basically you're going to work harder so that decisions aren't made in a purely like top down fashion. Yes. I think that that would be good for everybody. Yeah. That's the, that's the goal. Well, we'll see after these uncertain times. We will see (laughs) after these uncertain times. All right. Well, you get home safe. Yeah. Back to your home. Back to my bed. <laughs> you're gonna you're, you're gonna take your shower now, or did I ruin that whole situation? No, I could take it quick. Okay. And then see what my baby is doing. Yeah. He's been quiet. He didn't interrupt us at all. He didn't interrupt us at all. Yeah. That's how many we should have. There should be a drinking game for times that you repeated what I said. Yeah. <laughs> Someone can count. All right. Uh, maybe I'll put an intro and tell people to do that. That's a good idea. (laughs) All right.